Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, a day after the Fulton County Elections Board voted to fire Director Richard Barron, Fulton County Commission Chair Rob Pitts weighs in. Well, I'm going to look at the facts, and, and I need to understand again why the Board of Registration and Elections took the action that they did. The facts support their position, and I can support it. But as you and you correctly recall, I had been a cheerleader for what Barron had done from the beginnings of 2020 through January 5th. That conversation is just moments away. But first this, the brutal winter weather is delaying COVID-19 vaccine shipments throughout the country, and that includes right here in Georgia. Now, officials with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention state both Pfizer and Moderna manufacturers waited to send out shipments of their vaccines this week. And the Georgia Department of Public Health reports the shipments scheduled to arrive early this week have now been delayed. As a result, now providers statewide must now reschedule appointments, including for those receiving the second doses of the vaccine. Meanwhile, despite the short supply, Governor Brian Kemp says the state's public health districts are building the capacity to administer COVID-19 vaccination. Vaccination, excuse me. Here's Governor Kemp speaking with reporters yesterday at a vaccination site in College Park, Georgia. There's a lot of infrastructure just like this all over the state where there is availability to get more vaccines right now, today, if we had that supply. And we know that that day is coming. Now, this comes the same day Georgia surpassed 14,000 reported coronavirus deaths. The Georgia Department of Public Health confirmed 180 deaths yesterday, which brings the total to 14,176. Also yesterday, the Department of Public Health reported more than 1,800 new COVID-19 cases. And now the total number stands at 794,349 Georgians who have contracted the virus since last March. And as always, this is according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. Now, later in the program, we'll hear from a COVID-19 survivor and a community activist in Gainesville, which is located in Hall County. This is one of the top five counties in the state for new cases. And we'll have a conversation regarding how the coronavirus has impacted many Hispanic communities and their efforts to now get folks vaccinated. That's coming up in this hour. Stay tuned. There's more Closer Look Ahead. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. As mentioned, the Fulton County Elections Board voted to fire Elections Director Richard Barron yesterday. It was a contentious hour-long virtual meeting, but with a 3-2 vote for Barron's termination. This is not political. This is a bipartisan vote. The department needs new leadership that can take Fulton to the next level, modernizing our election process, making the county election system more accurate, cost-effective, and efficient. Now, that was Republican board member Dr. Kathleen Ruth. Democrat appointee Aaron Johnson spoke in favor of retaining Barron. It's not just Rick that we're getting rid of. As mentioned by one of the staff, we're sucking the air out of the department. Now, everybody is fine with that. I just think it's going to cause chaos in our department. I think it's going to cause chaos for the November elections. And I just don't feel that this is the best option for this department. Now, it's been reported attorneys for Fulton County are advising the County Board of Commissioners that they must approve the board's decision. We're still trying to confirm that. But earlier today, ahead of a planned meeting with the Elections Board, I spoke with Fulton County Commission Chair Rob Pitts. Chairman Pitts, thanks for taking the time. I always appreciate it. 
great to be with you this morning. Now, I want to begin here because prior to last week's vote to fire Richard Barron, which was in violation of Georgia's open records law, did you have any knowledge that the Fulton Elections Board would seek this vote? I had no knowledge whatsoever that that was even being contemplated. So no one on the election board hinted or indicated to you that Richard Barron's job was in jeopardy? No. The only thing I knew is that there was going to be a, uh, a meeting of the Board of Registration and Elections and that there was a personnel matter to be discussed. That's all I knew. And have you had a chance to go back and review the meeting? I have not because the, their discussion would have taken place in executive session and only the board members and maybe their attorney would have been privy to what was discussed in the executive session. They apparently took a vote, which they should not have done in executive session. That vote was to be taken publicly, and they since corrected that and had a public vote. And then the public vote then was, in fact, to the 3-2 vote to terminate uh, Mr. Barron. For a second there, if you can bear with me, I do want to play. This is a cut from Dr. Kathleen Ruth. This is not political. This is a bipartisan vote. The department needs new leadership that can take Fulton to the next level, modernizing our election process, making the county election system more accurate, cost-effective, and efficient. And Dr. Ruth went on to say that there was a report that was issued by the state elections board that found a number of issues related to Fulton County and its election process. What do you make of this, Chairman Pitts? Well, I, I, I'm told that there's an eight-page report, which I'm going to read uh, this morning before our meeting to see what's in that report. And then I will be basing whatever decision I have to make, uh, certainly based upon the facts, because I know the facts. Now, Dr. Kathleen Roof stated this vote was not political. Your thoughts on that? Well, I have a great deal of respect for Dr. Roof, and so I don't know why she made that statement unless there are allegations that, that, it, that it's political. But I would hope that uh, we would keep politics out of this and our decision would be based upon what's best for, you know, for that department, Board of Registration and Elections, and ultimately for the uh, the voters of Fulton County. Have you had a chance to speak with any member of the Elections Board? I know all this took place yesterday, but have you had a chance to speak with anybody? I spoke with Mary Carol Cooney, the chair of that board, and she informed me that a letter was uh, being drafted to be sent to me uh, in time for the board meeting this morning. And for clarity, Chairman Pitts, will the county board of commissioners have to approve the election board's decision here? Well, that's going to be a, a, a matter to be discussed. We had historically been told that the board of commissioners uh, could not hire, could not fire the uh, director. And now uh, we're told that uh, there is a role for us. And if you read the language, it uses the term that the Board of Registration and Elections recommends to the Board of Commissioners. And so I interpret the word recommend to mean that when it comes to us, we can agree with their position on a matter or we can not agree with their position on a matter. Well, you don't agree with their position on the matter, but you don't have a vote, correct? Well, I'm not... I, don't, I did not say that I do not agree with their position, but I need to find out exactly uh, why they reached the conclusion that they did, the conclusion being to terminate uh, Mr. Barron. And I'll read the uh, report that, uh, that has been generated, and then I'd like to, you know, to talk with, to the extent that we can, to talk with members of the uh, Board of Registration and Elections to find out exactly what's going on. We're all in this together, and mm-hmm. I think we all want the same thing. And there's no doubt that uh, I was, as you all know, as the world knows, I became personally invested in our 20, uh, 2020 elections and going back to early part of last year through January 5th of this year to ensure that uh, things went smoothly. And from early on when there were issues not caused by Fulton County, uh, we made adjustments and to the extent that in November, You'll recall, I gave us an A-plus. Mm-hmm. And then on January 5th, I gave us another A-plus. So I need to understand uh, why the decision was made. You have told me on this program, and I've asked you specifically about 
the performance of Richard Barron, you, as you just pointed out, you said that given everything that's taken place the last year, particularly with the pandemic and all the issues that happened with the primary, that you were extremely pleased with the turnaround. Have you had a chance to speak with Richard Barron? I have not, but that you're absolutely correct. That's my point. Uh, I think that we went from, again, no fault of our own, but the, the proverbial from, from worst to first from going back to the early challenges in 2020 to, to November and to, to January, um, we did an outstanding job. When you're the leader at the top, mm-hmm. when things go well, you get the credit. When things don't go so well, you get the blame. So I'm going to try to sort it out, as will my colleague this morning. First of all, we need to determine uh, what is our role in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, do we just accept uh and ratify the actions of the Board of Registration and Elections, or are we the final final arbiter in this case? Finally, Chairman Pitts, from your viewpoint, what does this latest development with Fulton County elections, which we all know has been scrutinized in the past, could this be an opportunity for great improvements, or to the contrary, extremely problematic and cause more problems? Well, I think that, you know, timing is really important here. You know, there, there are a lot of, lot of bills have been introduced at the state uh making changes in the whole voting process. Uh, there's uh, this situation here with uh, action by the Board of Registration Elections to terminate Mr. Barron. Uh, there's uh, the situation with the district attorney and, and former President Trump. All of these things going along right now, and I was watching the, you know, the uh, morning news shows on Sunday, and every other word out of the mouths of the uh, the uh, reporters with Fulton County, Georgia, Fulton County, Georgia. So we're right in the thick of it again. Chairman Pitts, when I asked you about was this political and if you deem that perhaps through your own investigation or through your own assessment here that perhaps this is political, what can you do? I can't can't conclude yet. I mean, that it's political. I'm going to look at the facts and and I need to understand again why the Board of Registration and Elections took the uh, action that they did. Uh, and the facts support uh, their position, and I can support it. But uh, as you and you correctly recall, <clears throat> I had been a cheerleader for uh, what uh, Barron had done from the uh, beginnings of uh, 2020 through January 5th. I mean, uh, and we, we the board, we gave him every resource that he needed uh, mm-hmm. from the point of view of approaching $40 million. Of course, he, he was able to secure some of that through a grant, but we put personnel there. We were, I mean, I was, you know, in lockstep with him, uh, making sure. And I said then, and I'll say again, I am not, was not, am not aware of any underhanded activity within Fulton County. I can't speak to what may have happened in the other 158 counties, but I can speak to what happened in Fulton County, my county, and I can assure the public that now there's no election is perfect. Mm-hmm. And let's, let's state that. No election is perfect. But that being said, I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that our election was fair, open, and transparent. And I've asked for those who have been critical of us to bring me some evidence, and no one has yet to bring me any cred- credible evidence I mean, I was even criticized for the leak at State Farm Arena, and nothing could be further from the truth. There was a leak. I mean, it was, I think it was 6.07 when it was reported, and it was fixed at 8.07. I may be off by a minute or two, but I'm being told that, well, (laughs) I'm lying. There was no leak. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. The toilet overflowed, but no ballots were damaged and no equipment was, was damaged. Fulton County Commission Chair Rob Pitts, as always, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. We look forward to getting a follow-up from you as well as our listeners and those in Fulton County. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you.
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. Of course, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Earlier this week, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp met with state and local leaders in Gainesville, Georgia. There, the governor hosted a roundtable conversation on health equity for those in the Hispanic community. Now, members of the media were not allowed in this roundtable meeting, but according to a press release from the governor's office, the focus of the conversation was to address, quote, vaccine hesitancy. Now, Hall County remains one of the top five in the state for new cases. And we've discussed it throughout the pandemic on this program that the Gainesville area's Hispanic community has been disproportionately affected by COVID-19. You might recall last October, I had a conversation with a COVID-19 survivor living in Gainesville. Her name was Maria Rosario Palacios. I lost my grandfather to COVID and um, my boyfriend just lost his his grandmother who raised him two weeks ago to COVID. And part of the saddest thing in this is that fear and that reality that folks have been isolated. And so my mother was very afraid of going to the hospital. Hmm. Now, Maria, also a community activist, joins me once again with an update. And we have a lot to talk about. Maria, thank you for taking the time. I really, I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me here, Rose. Appreciate it. Maria, first and foremost, how are you and, and your family doing? Is your mother well? She is okay. Um, she, she actually must have heard it because she's calling me right now. Um, she's okay. She's not the same. Um, you know, her her blood pressure medicine and her diabetes medicine is really expensive. And so mm-hmm. unfortunately, she um, without health insurance, she sometimes... Um, has harder days than than none. She doesn't have health insurance. Maria, how are you all paying for Mm -hmm. her medicine? We're paying out of pocket. Um, Truth be told, we're paying out of pocket, and we're also looking forward to being able to um, have her go to Mexico for a little bit and see if she can get medical treatment there and have, um, you know, some better treatment that we could do long-term, but we're having to look outside of the country because of the costs. Has being diagnosed with COVID-19, obviously it has been a long-term effect on you and your family. Is this the case for a lot of families in the community up there in Hall County in Gainesville, Maria? Yes, it's definitely the case. A lot of folks who are having to go um, without work again for long periods of times and Unfortunately, folks um, who are close to us who are undocumented and don't have the same protections, who have also lost their job because they had to be out of work for a few weeks at a time. How are folks making it? Um, it's, it's difficult. You know, a lot of folks reach out to our volunteer group that I, I mentioned to you last time I was here. Georgia Familias Unidas, we get daily requests to have folks um, get assistance with medical bills, with medicine. I mean, folks who are very, very sick, folks who have children with cancer, folks who have children with other terminal illnesses and are facing eviction, don't have enough medicine for themselves. And almost always it's like, if, if you could just help me, if you can just help my kids, that's enough. Um, you know, they ask for, for very little because they're, they're struggling with so much, but, you know, they themselves have to prioritize one thing over everything else. 
Last time we spoke, you were taking part in a collective COVID-19 Survivors for Change. You know, you all were helping so many p- people. Um, where are you all now? I mean, it, what are you all mm-hmm. able to do? How are you able to help anyone? It's it's constant uh, fundraising, constant calling folks up, you know, reminding them that this crisis has hit our community so, so hard. And even, I mean, the data is there. Latinos, like as an ethnicity, is is the ethnicity that has the least amount of vaccinations. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't look like even that development is going to reach our community anytime soon. We're not going to see the impact or relief there. So right now we have had to also pivot to a crisis response to the fatal nitrogen leak that took place mm-hmm. 20 days ago on the 28th of January. So that compounded with the pandemic, obviously, that mm-hmm. still continues and you all trying to help folks and all this is just exasperated all these other conditions and issues that folks in the community are dealing with. Are you all able to get any funding assistance from within the county or the state or from anyone? Uh, we have not uh, had any anyone from the county or the state um, or even the plants that are responsible for the well-being of their workers to provide relief. And we have handed out in the last 18 weeks, we have handed out $63,000 that has been through grassroots efforts, uh, a GoFundMe, a GoFundMe that has over 950 uh, different donors, PayPal fundraisers, Cash App fundraisers. Our organization does fundraising from the, from the minute we wake up till the minute we go to sleep. As far as efforts now to get folks vaccinated for those who are eligible and who want to be vaccinated, even before the, the shortage in, in the supply, was this an issue of vaccine hesitancy as we, as we hear, or was it just access, lack of access and then lo- lack of awareness about even how to go about getting the vaccine? It's, it's all of it, and it's coupled with um, language access barriers, and it's coupled even with, even when you do speak Spanish, um, which is right, is, is the largest language that a lot of our community members speak, literacy rates vary. Mm-hmm. And if you are, you know, just saying like, oh, read this or read this information, or we need you to sign up online, there's a huge technological gap. Um, not all mobile devices are the same. You know, um, a lot of folks, even when, when we try to do things semi-tech, we usually have to walk folks through the in person uh, because even over the phone, um, you know, people still don't have uh, constant access to even a cellular plan, right? There's a lot mm-hmm. of gaps in being able to pay those month-by-month um, cell phones. You mentioned for those who had lost their jobs or who weren't able to, to work, um, lost their jobs. Now we all are aware of the eviction crisis. Uh, what is that looking like in Hall County in the communities that you're working in? Are we seeing families come to move together? You know, what are, do folks have options? Folks don't have a lot of options. Oftentimes what we're seeing is someone is, you know, someone maybe from church or someone uh, who's a friend of a friend has agreed to let a family stay in, in the corner of their living room, right? And so you imagine a family of four camping up and you just, you know, you lay some blankets down and and that's where you can sleep, right? But there's definitely no other privacy. And having to take care of children in someone else's home, especially when you don't know other folks, that's always, um, that's always a really scary thing to do in moments like these. Maria, how are you handling all of this? We've talked before about mental health as it relates to folks who in this area having access to that. I want to start with you because I want you to be able to tell that. How are you handling that? Where do you go for help, Maria? <laughs> um, well, I definitely have I definitely have my own therapist as, as one, which is I think is always needed. Um, and I have, I am lucky enough to, to have a lot of friends who, who are in the field, who always are checking in, uh, and close friends too, and, and the support of, um, of a domestic partner too. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a recent development in my, in my life. Um, 
And so that's, that's very helpful, but you know, I have to take days off where I just, I silence my phone and I have to pause. And there's also moments where I have to step away in a moment where I'm helping a poultry plant worker because what they're speaking on hits so close to home. And, and I mean, especially in the nitrogen leak, folks are experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. And in our community, that's, that's a whole nother language. And so folks experiencing not being able to sleep, seeing what we call in Spanish, mirando muertos, seeing, you know, uh, death, dead people, which is, again, just reliving the moments of seeing uh, five of their coworkers pass away right in front of them. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. And our community does not have any support. And so we've tried to, we've brought in therapists. So some of our events, to two of the events we've had on Saturdays for folks to speak to. And we know we're not even chipping away at even a tenth of what they need. I understand the community has come together to help those workers from that poultry plant. You've played a role in this as well. It seems silly to even ask how the families are doing at this time, but how are you all able to help them? Yes, so we've been lucky enough that we've gotten to give um, some funds to four of the folks, four of the families who've passed away. The fifth family uh, that we hadn't been able to reach in contact we're visiting this weekend. Um, and in addition to that, there's been 80 workers who are survivors of the event who have all received at least $300 from us in direct assistance. Uh, we've been giving them grocery cards as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, this weekend, we're going to have a food bank where we actually drive out food to them. Um, but they're not, they're not well. One, they're extremely concerned financially because there's been no consistent direct answer to missing pay for the last, you know, 20 days now that they've been out of work. They were supposed to go back to work Monday. It was delayed. But they also are really afraid of going back. Mm-hmm. There is complaints about ammonia and nitrogen um, even prior to the 28th. And so, you know, there's been no reassurance that they are not risking their lives yet again um, on, on the site. So it's, it's a really scary time for everyone. Before we wrap up, I do want to get back to the governor's visit there, Governor Brian Kemp. Yeah. And apparently he met with local leaders in the Hispanic community. Do you know what came out of that? I mean, if the, the conversation was to, to address, quote, vaccine hesitancy, but it seems like there are so many other issues that you all needed to have addressed. Do you know of anyone who was in this meeting? And if so, what, what came out of it? No, you know, I've been organizing for over 10 years um, and I'm very close to the leaders. I don't know of anyone personally who attended this meeting um, it really seems to have been, unfortunately, a more performative uh, roundtable than one that actually presented solutions, especially given the urgency of folks dying, not just in nitrogen leaks, but to COVID. In other words, just an opportunity, you think, by the governor and others to show their face but not doing anything? Is that what you're saying, Maria? I'll be very honest, yes, because when you look at the Georgia Department of Health Statistics, I mean, even at a bar graph, the Latin, Latinx uh, ethnicity is is almost not visible um, as far as vaccination representation. And we know that, you know, in the country, we're the state with the eighth largest Hispanic population. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think it was honestly to offset the fact that the data is showing that he's not doing enough for our community. And he's definitely not doing enough in Gainesville, which has the largest number of a documented population in the entire country. Maria, it's been a hard year for so many people. What are your hopes for your community? My hopes is that folks will continue to uh, step in and help out. We've had folks from all sorts of fields, medical professionals, you know, folks who've never been activists, retired teachers, other retirees and folks who've reached out to help. And, you know, their crowdsourcing materials, PPE included, putting together kits. And so I am hopeful of of that continued effort. But at the end of the day, I know we need our elected officials to make some tangible changes. And so I hope that everyone out there who's listening, who has the ability to make better policy, does so for our community because it's urgent. 
Maria del Rosario Palacios is a COVID-19 survivor. She's working with the mutual aid organization, helping the poultry plant workers during the pandemic. We'll have links to the organizations on our website. Maria, thank you so much for taking the time. We hope the best for you, your mother, and everyone else in the community. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. Talk to you soon. All right now. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Got to go back a couple of years now. Tuesday, June 17th, 2019, the day before a House Judiciary Subcommittee was to start a historic hearing on reparations for slavery. Then Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell was asked about reparations. Here's what Senator McConnell said. I don't think reparations for something that happened 150 years ago for whom none of us currently living are responsible is a good idea. Uh, we've, you know, tried to deal with our original sin of slavery by fighting a civil war, by passing uh, landmark civil rights legislation. Uh, we've elected an African-American president. I, I think we're always a work in progress in this country, uh, but n- no one currently alive was responsible for that. McConnell went on to say it would be impossible to figure out who should be compensated. Well, the next day, award-winning writer Ta-Nehisi Coates responded to Senator McConnell. Enslavement reigned for 250 years on these shores. When it ended, this country could have extended its hallowed principles, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to all regardless of color. But America had other principles in mind. And so for a century after the Civil War, black people were subjected to a relentless campaign of terror, a campaign that extended well into the lifetime of Majority Leader McConnell. Debatable? Sure. And it's at the core of a lot and then some and also the core of a new podcast debuting this week. It's called Reparations, the Big Payback. We want you to imagine a world where there has been atonement for the past, a world where reparations are real. We'll take you to the first slave market in New York and make the economic case for reconciliation. We should get truth. We should get some money. And then after we do all that, we should have justice for people who have done us wrong. And we'll meet people, black and white, who think reparations is a horrible idea, both morally and economically. Some poor family, wherever they may be, they need help. But we're not going to give them help because of their skin color? If we were to pay reparations today... We would insult many black Americans by putting a price on the suffering of their ancestors. Now, each episode is co-narrated by social justice filmmaker and actress Erica Alexander. She's been on this program twice before, I'm proud to say. And Whitney Dow, documentary filmmaker, producer and director, award winning as well. And both join me now. Thank you all for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you, Rose. It's such so great to see you again. You always in the mix. So thank you for having us on. Always Talk in the mix. It. That should be my a new podcast. Rose Scott is always <laughs> in the mix. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. You you know, if if Barack Obama could be reparations, then you definitely are. <laughs> you know the foundation of reparations. You know what's interesting today, uh, Eric and Whitney, there is a another hearing taking place. Um, right now, um, I was tuning in a little bit earlier and I saw Hersha Walker talking and I tweeted about it. But uh, before we dig into the podcast, because I want to set set it for everybody, let's just get your thoughts on where we are as a nation right now. Given what took place back on January 6th, obviously last year with the protests for racial justice, we're still in this pandemic. We're talking about rep- reparations. Eric, I'll start with you. When you put all that together, where are we as a nation right now? Um, I don't think we were in a good place. Obviously, we had an insurrection of mostly white supremacist uh, so-called citizens stormed the Capitol, and very little um, has happened thus far, although they're arresting them. But they were told a story long ago that gave them permission to do it with impunity. And they did not only storm the Capitol and broke windows, they went in and defecated and feared their species and peed and urinated and did everything as vile that was in um, their hearts to do to something. Um, it's a building, but it's, it's the symbolism of it. So I think that we're in a very dark place. The other thing is, before then, 
it's 2020 and we are in the middle of a plague, a pandemic, and we're watching people like George Floyd die and be um, lynched in broad daylight and Ahmaud Aubrey be hunted. We're watching people uh, and talking about Breonna Taylor and, and all these things happening. And, and uh, John Lewis left us and we have to deal with the fact that so many of our freedom fighters, Cecily Tyson, people who have tried their whole lives to lift the uh, black race and lift America's consciousness are leaving us. And uh, they're making room for new players. So that gives us hope that the new players and the room that they made available and the, and the blueprints and the breadcrumbs are there. But I think right now, America's in a very dark place, but it's always been in that place. It's just very plain. Whitney, what about you? How do you sum all this up? I think we're at a crossroads, really. I think that's really where we are. And I think that, you know, because, you know, everything that Erica says is true, but there's also, you know, the, 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 um, that's what George Floyd did two things. One, it, it was, it was this horrible event that kind of showed the, the, uh, you know, the world, the state of policing in, in, in the United States, but it also showed white people things that they've denied for so long. I think the very fact that it wasn't a violent killing, it was so sort of slow, it was violent, but it was not chaotic, I guess is the be better word to say, that you just had to look at it and see the, the very sort of like lack of chaos in it. And almost like, you know, and the officer kneeling on, like he was kneeling on like a, you know, like a bag of bricks or something. Mm -hmm. It was so like, that's why I think white people couldn't turn away. So while we're having, having this insurrection, we're having this big pushback. We also had millions of people, white people in the street. And for the first time was kind of saying, I didn't think that the conversation would get this far. I agree with Erica that it's, it's terrible and it's revealed all these horrible things about us. But I think there's also an interest of a certain segment of white people to engage this issue in a way that they haven't before. Well, and Whitney, let me stay with you. You can begin this answering this next question, because when we talk about then folks who might have been surprised, how do we get here? And I can't believe we, we're this type of nation. Well, this all go, it all goes back. You, people, it can be debated in terms of after, before the Civil War, you know, after the Civil War, now we're talking about reparations. Now you have people saying, well, we shouldn't live in the past. But the idea behind this podcast and in reparations, and I love origin stories, how did all this come about? And, and Whitney, I'll let you start with this, and then Erica, you pick it up. Well, you know, this 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 journey with Eric, I mean, started, and I'll talk specifically about the podcast, two years ago when uh, uh, a mutual friend of ours, Joy Reid, introduced us and said, you know, you guys are both doing interesting things. You're both working on social justice issues. You're both, and she, and you're both interested in reparations. You should talk to each other. So we got, got together, we started talking. What was so fascinating about meeting Erica um, is that both of us has traveled very different roads. I mean, I, our backgrounds are so different. The, our life experience is so different, but we've tra traveled these roads and landed in the place where we both feel that reparations is the most important issue facing our country now. The division between black and white Americans, I think is at the core of all our divisions. And until we decide to address that head on and, and work hard to heal that division, which I think reparations is a, is a, big, uh, a big piece of that equation, we're not gonna move forward. So what you said about the past is true, I think. And part of that is white people have to be ready to accept their true story their true role in creating this country, how they benefited from it, how they perpetuated the oppression, and even and just on the day-to-day, -day, how it is, it's surrounding us all the time. So when, you know, when we started making this film about a year ago, about two years ago, uh, we also spent so much time talking about it, the podcast seemed like a natural outgrowth to take mm -hmm. that, where you, the film is so linear to actually be able to really go deep into the subject matter, and also do it across race, which I think is really important. Erica, what do you want to add to that? Um, when I started this journey, I, I mistook the reparations movement as a personal admission from white people and a payment of monetary and a moral debt from white people towards me and say my fellow African-Americans. But now having gone through it a little bit and I'm no expert, I'm convinced and have been educated by those who are, are, are committed and they are experts in this issue. And, and, and it's, um, I had a limited point of view. Mm -hmm. This debt resides within the very fabric of America. 
from C to signing mm-hmm. C. It's inside of the DNA. So it's the government's debt to pay. And I learned that from talking to people like Mary Frances Berry mm-hmm. and uh, William Darity when they start to say, you know, um, white people don't have to own this. America has to own it. And I thought that's, a, that's, that's something that is possible, you know, that you can wrap your head around. Everybody doesn't want to dig in their own pockets. They don't feel that they have any um, relationship to slavery because they say, well, those are my ancestors. But the, the, um, the debt paid by America are to the people who had to bear the burden of propping up white people and America to be successful, whether they were uh, good at what they did or not. They had these black uh, these black people paying for that debt in sweat and pain and suffering and also their whole lives, 400 years. So that's that's where I'm at with it. I'm, I'm glad to be learning and, and earning some kind of respect and credentials inside of it just to say that I know more as a citizen. But there are people who've been working on this for a very long time. Well, you mentioned uh, Bill Darity, of course, he and his wife, and they wrote, uh, I've actually had a conversation with them from here to equality, reparations for black Americans in the 21st century. You all take through this podcast, you all take the listeners through a lot of different places. It's not just people going back and forth, arguing and talking. You take the listener through a series of places so they could, however they want to make up their minds, so they could get a full grasp of what you all or presenting here. I imagine that was part of the whole conception of this, not just to have folks going back and forth and arguing. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, we, we wanted to have a conversation that, you know, as, as Whitney says, you know, in a documentary as it goes so quick, you know, it can, visuals can do a lot of things, but they can't go deep. They can't mm-hmm. go as deep as you want to be. And there are people who deserve more. This subject deserves many more documentaries to be done about it, many more podcasts to be done about it. But it also, you have all these amazing people from Reverend Barber to uh, Karen Weaver that we'd like to talk to, Mayor Karen Weaver um, of of Flint. We have Julianne Malveaux. We Mm -hmm. have amazing, wonderful people to talk to, but you can't do it quickly. So if we wanna ask um, the questions about um, the history of reparations, obviously. History of slavery, you have to talk about. Then you have to talk about white money and black power. You have to talk about the spoils of war because that's what this is. This is a battle. And the spoils of war, um, who got them? But also, we are the spoils of war. You know, there's a moral matter as well. The debt that's built into the, the, the moral fabric of America and that should be in their hearts is not often there because they want to divorce themselves from having any responsibility for what they've earned or gained from it. And then there's obviously the debt, mm-hmm. who pays it, who gets it. And, you know, they're always telling us to bootstrap us, but they cut off our feet all the time. So, you know, there's all these things happening and you can talk to, to point to Tulsa and Rosewood and all these other places, but it has to be um, talked about. And luckily these amazing experts who have been in the fight and, and created groups around it and advocacy and activism, they're able to talk really well around this issue. Whitney, you and Erica, you're both creatives. You're both storytellers. You have been in front and behind the camera, and in this in this case, in front and behind the mic. How is this project different from anything you've worked on in the past, Whitney? Well, first of all, it's audio. You have to yeah. like now. You gotta, you know, Welcome to my world, Whitney. <laughs> <laughs> I do it all the time, baby. That's a good question. I know that. And it's, you know, it's also, it's also interesting, you know, normally when I work on a project, I'm work, I'm, I'm up against a force of nature in Erica Alexander, as I think, you know, I'm up against a force of nature. Thank you. So, and so, you know, I've, and you know, part of our thing, part of the, you know, the complication of making the podcast is not just that it's a black woman and a white man making the podcast, but two very different missions. I mean, that's really what we're really interested in is that we both have the same goal but we have, we're on different missions. I'm out to save white people. I feel like I have an obligation to like, to, to not just work, to work in my own community to bring people into this fight. I feel it's our obligation. It's our debt. It's our responsibility. If you want to become, if we want to become full citizens of this country, if we want to become full Americans, this is something that we have to take up. This is not black people's responsibility. We created, we have to respond to it. The second part of that is that, you know, Erica is, as you know, a wonderful actor. I'm 
a guy who like has been hiding behind a camera for you know a couple of decades, and now I got to step up to the microphone, and that's that's pretty intimidating to be to do that around uh, Erica, who's like such a you know as both a you know she's a creative force, a he personal does a great force. job. Yeah, was it hard for you to find your voice, uh, the voice that you were comfortable with, the cadence, Whitney? Since this was new for you, was was that a challenge for you at all? I'm still finding it. Yes. <laughs> I'm still finding it. It, it is because I want to be, I mean, one thing we talk a lot about is that I want, my, I kind of view my job. There's a lot of black voices out there. I want to bring white ears who can hear them. So part of my job is to be the interpreter and, as, and to be in that space. It's also, I'm not used to being in a space where I'm, you know, this is comfortable for me talking to you, talking about myself. But when something is actually has to be a scripted out thing, as Erica knows, I'll be like, Erica, I'm really nervous about this. I'm nervous how I sound. I'm nervous. I'm nervous. And she's been very, very gentle with me, which I appreciate and, and bring me along. But, you yeah, know, I think it is trying to hard to find that voice that is your authentic voice and can bring something to the viewer. But I also view my job as also a stand in for white people as well. How to sort of model for white people, how they can get into these hard conversations. Because they are hard and they're complicated. But what have you learned, Whitney? Well, what have you learned then about having this conversation? You say it's hard. What have Mm. you learned? Are you still processing it? No, what I've learned is that you don't have to agree on the method. You don't have to agree on anything to agree in the goal. And sometimes I think there's a lot of there's a lot of, 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 of sort of focus in sort of on the left of like trying to understand Well, I need to understand you. I don't think I could ever understand what your experience was like, you know, Rose living alone. I could never, I wouldn't presume to possibly understand what Erica's experience are in the world, but that doesn't mean that I can't care about her and work with her towards something. And so I think the thing is letting go of this, having to cross this divide. I think that in some ways, some divides can't be crossed. We live in different realities and that's just true. So Erica, do you see, I, I, Mention you all I, as co-narrators. Do you see yourself as a, a narrator or in a sense someone who is telling the story, being a storyteller and then bringing in other voices or a little bit of both? Maybe a little bit of both. And it's funny that you should place it that way because being black, this is not a story that's outside of me. Mm-hmm. It's inside of me. I get to tell my story about being not only black and, and say in Hollywood and in the industry, because people think there's so many advantages that I have naturally because I'm in that. And they're right. That does happen. You know, celebrity is its own advantage. Um, certainly being successful for a certain amount of time. And if people recognize you, you start to, you know, um, get, you know, a lot of movement and, um, you know, they give you, they, there's advantages to be said. Sure. But, you know, I have the background. You talk about origin stories. It's funny that you say that because we started our first episode talking about our origin story. And Whitney talks about his coming from Cambridge, Massachusetts, and, you know, um, how he was raised and the education he had. And I talk about mine coming from Flagstaff, Arizona. We get more into it as the episodes go. But, you know, I always famously say that both my parents were orphans and I come from Arizona and, you know, I'm high school education and I, and I didn't go to college, although I was accepted. I did not go. So everything that I've done so far, a lot of these things have have been through, you know, a lot of great fortune, people giving me, allowing me to be educated as I do it, and then also, um, you know, working hard. And a lot of people say, well, we all work hard. And so, you know, there's that. And I said, yeah, but I'm working against headwinds that I didn't put there and that are invisible to me. And that's why this story is is a little harder for me to tell. Mm -hmm. And I've told Whitney before that part of the thing he's up against is the fact that um, he's a stand-in partially for white America and I am for black America and I feel I have the moral high ground. So even though he may be woke, even though he may be, you know, um, you know, far in advance of, let's say, many other white people may be on this subject, he still has a ways to go because mm-hmm. I'm looking at him and I can see him in a different space. And I don't think he, ultimately he's right. He can't understand the pain and, and, and true frustration that it is to be black in the world. I know if I was a white male, I would be president. I have no doubt about it seeing Trump. 
There's a lot of people who feel that way. But, you know, you could take any uh, low-class idiot and put them in. Obviously, they proved that. The point is, is that if you can see yourself doing well against all odds, then there's all sorts of things that maybe were you, you weren't available to you. And that's frustrating. And I know that that's the case. And so I try to speak to that as much as I can. Um, and it may be t- t- tough for him, but he's also speaking to it, whether he knows it or not. He's not just a stand-in. Some of the things he says absolutely push those buttons. Mm. Reparations, the big payback. Is this a one-season podcast? Do you all envision this as long as you need to? Well, that's that's the, that's we'll, we'll see. We'll see if people like it and and everything, and to see if you know Erica will put up with me for you know going forward from here. We'll see. But uh, you know, look as Erica said at the top, this is a complicated subject. There's no way that twelve episodes of this subject could actually unpack mm-hmm. the centuries of that we have to unpack in this thing. So you know, I I can see you know this is. This has been the race and what it means to be part of a community like America has been sort of the subject of my work for you know over two decades. Mm-hmm. I find it. And the problem is every time you think you get an answer, that answer is a question. So you've got to keep going. Yeah. Or every time you think you get an answer, um, white supremacists take over the Capitol. I mean, so <laughs> <laughs> he's like, oh, we made progress. I said, oh, really? Look at that. Uh, you, you know, know then you say, oh, we have to add another episode. Yes, <laughs> exactly. But we got to give props to the Black Effect Network, Podcast Network, and that's uh, Charlemagne yeah. the God, because he's giving us the opportunity and the resources to do this work. He's obviously very much into reparations and those types of things. But they said yes, and then they let us do it. And so we'd like to do it as long as we can, because we think that there are many ways to talk about race and not just through reparations work, but also there's ways to also uplift voices who are doing the work. If we're good at it and people like it, They'll give us maybe another opportunity to do another season. We love that. Will, will we survive it, Rose? I don't know. <laughs> come on down to Georgia now. Ask us later. Yeah, come yeah. on down to Georgia. We got we got some stories down here. So the pod, <laughs> well, yeah. the podcast. We can't wait to travel again. That's something we, you know, Eric and I, we've talked about. We'd love to do a project that we can just drop, you know. We'll see you. We'll see you as soon as possible. Yeah, right. George, is a, George is a stop on that train. All right. The podcast, the podcast is Reparations, a Big Payback. Social justice filmmaker and actress Eric Alexander, Whitney Dow, documentary filmmaker, producer, and director Ward Winnie. Thank you both for taking the time. Good conversation. Good to see you again, as always, Eric. Good, conform- good conversation, good Whitney. You. Hang in there. You're doing all right. Yeah. <laughs> Don't give up. If Rose, Scott, if Rose Scott says it, it's true. Can't uh, wait I, to I, do some more stuff with you too, Rose. Absolutely. I'm, record- I'm, rec- I'm recording this, Rose. I'm recording this. I'm going to use it. Hey, hey, Whitney, keep hope alive. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Bro. Thank right. you, Rose. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.